You're listening to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. Guys, it's our 100th episode. We made it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting us. We love doing this, and uh, we love your feedback. So hit us with your thoughts and suggestions, and maybe perhaps even criticism or two, at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. All right, today's episode, associate editor Emil Stonic and test kitchen manager Brad Leone sit down with fermentation expert, or as he calls himself, fermentation revivalist, uh, Sandor Katz. Katz has two cookbooks, Wild Fermentation and The Art of Fermentation, the latter of which won a James Beard Foundation Award in 2012. Both of those books go in deep on the history and benefits of fermenting, as well as how to do it yourself. Vegetables into sauerkraut and kimchi, sugar into alcohol, milk into yogurt, and so much more. All right, you guys ready to nerd out? Let's do this thing. Emil, Brad, and Sandor. I'm here with Brad Leone, our test kitchen manager, and Sander Katz, storied uh, cookbook, not cookbook author? I don't know. Would you call it, Would you call your books cookbooks? Uh, sure. I mean, they're guiding people um, uh, you know, in techniques for working with food, and some of them involve cooking and some of them don't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sander Katz, fermentation guru, fetishist, as you, uh, you self-identify as a fermentation fetishist. Well, when I wrote Wild Fermentation in 2003, that was how I described myself, and it, it certainly <laughs> got me plenty of attention. Um, you know, these days I mostly describe myself as a fermentation revivalist. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, I'll, I'll still accept the other title. Uh huh. Uh-huh. All right. So, uh-huh. and, and you're the author of Wild Fermentation, which came out 2003 and is being reissued in its second edition? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the revised edition just came out um, maybe two months ago. So it's updated, um, you know, mostly based on you know the additional knowledge and experience that I have as a as a fermentation educator. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, try to explain things more clearly, more more focus on building concepts, some new recipes. Took some of the old ones out, improved some of the other old ones, and we added lots of beautiful color photos. Cool. And and in between the first edition of Wild Fermentation and the second, you wrote a little book called The Art of Fermentation, I, which right. won a James Beard Award and a lot of stuff like that. So, you know, just you, it's not like you were uh, sitting on your hands in the in the meantime. <laughs> no, and I've also, uh, you know, I've also been traveling quite extensively teaching fermentation workshops um, all over the place. Um, and that's where I first met you was in one such workshop. Yeah, that's true, at Royal Camp and Conference Center up in the Berkshires. Um, so, you know, the first thing I wanted to talk, I wanted to talk a little bit about fermentation, fermentation, fermentation culture, no pun intended, um, kind of more globally. And then you know, I'm sure Brad's excited to talk about some of the more um, technical, nerdy stuff. Um, not too technical. Not too technical. No, we're not going to bore anybody here. When Wild Fermentation first came out in 2003, it did very much feel like, like not niche but it was very much like this kind of DIY, like anarcho-revivalist, like homesteadery sort of book. And it, it felt very much like a zine. It was all illustrated. There were no photos. It was like a secret handshake a little bit. Like you would go into people's kitchens and you would see wild fermentation and you knew that they were kind of up to something. Fermentation really has changed in the way that it exists in our food culture, both in restaurants and home kitchens. And I'm just curious to know how it feels to kind of be a part of that and where you see yourself in that in that kind of 
transition from the the super niche to the you know almost at this point mainstream. Well, I mean, it's certainly gratifying that uh, you know so many people are interested in the things that I've been writing about and 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 talking about. But I mean, I mean, I think you're, you're right. I mean, I Wild Fermentation, the book, grew out of a zine that I wrote and self-published uh, in 2001, and um, you know, doing your own fermentation, uh, you know, in your home kitchen is something that is of interest to a relatively, you know, sort of small subset of the population. Um, you know, I think we have to separate the products of fermentation from the process of fermentation. Mm -hmm. And the products of fermentation have never, ever, ever waned in their popularity. Um, you know, beer and wine have not suddenly become of interest to people. Uh, bread and cheese and cured meats have not suddenly become of interest to people. You know, kombucha, uh, I will grant you, is an example of something that has come into prominence in the last 15 years. But I would say in general, you know, most of the products of fermentation have always been popular, are popular today, and in all likelihood will be popular, um, you know, for hundreds or thousands of years to come. And fermentation is so integral to all of our culinary traditions. But, you know, over the course of the 20th century, as people got, you know, less and less intimately involved in food production and, you know, kind of agriculture and all of the basic transformational processes that turn the products of agriculture into the things we like to eat, just largely disappeared from our day-to-day -day lives. So, you know, Know, fermentation became something mysterious, you know, because all aspects of food production were disappearing from our from our um, uh, uh, daily lives. And you know, I would say in the last um, you know fifteen or twenty years, we're we're, we're seeing just a, you know a broader renewed interest in food, how it's produced, where it comes from, by what methods it's transformed. And um, you know, once you start interrogating your food and asking questions like that, fermentation just is you know, among the answers. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think I think you're really right. You know, like as fermentation is becoming a less weird word for people to hear, I still feel like there's such a disconnect though. Cause like when I tell somebody and they're like, oh, like, what do you, uh, like, how do you ferment that kombucha? And you're like, oh, well, you actually have this, you know, this symbiotic colony of yeast and bacteria that's <laughs> well, eating the sugars. And like, they're like, oh, colony of yeast and bacteria. People I mean, have become so separated from their food. You know, you go to the supermarket or, you know, and you just buy something in a little package and you cook it or whatever. But, you know, a lot of people with fermentation are afraid of, of getting sick. You know, it's, it's this big, you know, demystifying it, I think, is one of the, is one of the biggest challenges. Uh, and just, you know, having recipes and certain things where people could start, I think, is super important. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, no, Brad, for you, you know, you know, for for those of you who don't know, Brad, who's our test kitchen manager, has like a just an alcove in the test kitchen that's basically <laughs> fully devoted to all of his fermentation experiments. He's got kombuchas, he's got fermenting honey, he's got misos. And I feel like over the past few years, you have had to kind of um, convince some of our coworkers that what you're doing is safe and, been some and desirable and delicious. I mean, what has that process been like for you? Like, I, I know you, there have been some naysayers who you've managed to convert. Well, well, I started, you know, just uh, just read a couple things and just started. You know, like I'm by no means a master, uh, or you know, every time I do it, I'm learning a little bit. It's me, just me too. Yeah, well, yeah, that's great. <laughs> you know, and uh, 
so like as I've evolved, you know, people have, and I've been eating it and coming to work the next day, um, <laughs> people have kind of, you know, been like, all right, well, he's not getting sick. He's not invincible. In fact, he's full of energy and bouncing off the walls. So <clears throat> I don't know, maybe that's, uh, people just start, you know, coworkers eventually, you know, some, some more than others, uh, have come along, have come, you know, come along to fermenting foods, but it's just like, you know, and I've learned a few things like, you know, uh, certain aspects of fermenting, you know, where it can harbor bad bacteria, you know, certain things can't live in a certain pH or a certain, you know, and, uh, so once you kind of get those basic guidelines down, it's seen, it so far seems pretty safe. Yeah, no, I mean, I, and I think that there's an interesting, the, the question of safety is an interesting one because it's also like, you know, you think about, um, like in a lot of ways, our our cleanliness has made you know as a culture has has almost made our food less safe in a certain way. That you know a lot of the naturally occurring yeast and bacteria that are used to preserve different foods um, actually will protect keep those protect those foods from the same things that we're terrified of the the E. coli's and the salmonellas and the listeria. Safety. And I mean, I, I get it all the time. I mean, you know, people who project their anxiety about bacteria onto fermented foods. So, you know, they're, they're following a recipe to make sauerkraut. It could be from my book. It could be from The Joy of Cooking. It's not like I made this stuff up. It's okay. everywhere. So, like, you know, you chop up your cabbage, you salt it, you pound or squeeze it a little bit, get it juicy, stuff it into a jar, get it submerged under its own juices. And then people start to worry. And so I get this email, you know, once a month, you know, how can I be sure that I have good bacteria growing on my fermenting cabbage and not dangerous bacteria that is going to make somebody sick or even kill somebody? Um, and, you know, the reason you know this is that there has never been any documented cases of food poisoning or illness from this food. Like, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, this is among the safest foods that we know. Wow. And, um, you know, every year we hear about, you know, people getting sick from raw vegetables. So, you know, clearly there's the potential for, you know, vegetables growing in a field to, to be contaminated. Usually the story is manure from a factory farm uphill washes over the field of vegetables. It could just as well happen by as a result of sloppy handling somebody failing to wash their hands at uh, you know critical hygienic moments um but you know even if you took vegetables that had been subjected to some sort of incidental contamination and you chopped them up salted them get them juicy stuff them in a jar to ferment them what's going to happen is the indigenous population of lactic lactic acid bacteria are going to dominate um and as they acidify the environment it kills off the pathogenic bacteria mm. Sauerkraut is so safe that no one ever has to do this. But sometimes in salami making or in certain kinds of cheese making, the producers are actually required to intentionally introduce known pathogenic bacteria that people worry about into the raw products so that they can prove that their process would kill them. Wow. Um, so, I mean, fermentation really is, uh, you know, a, like a strategy for safety. And... Um, you know, I think, you know, what, what Brad was saying, I mean, it's really, it's important to understand, like, the selective environment you were trying to create. Um, um, 
you know, because that's what's going to determine which organisms are going to grow. On any raw food, there's a, an, an elaborate community of, of different kinds of organisms and which of them will grow, which of them will dominate depends entirely on environmental considerations. And so, you know, you could even go so far as to say that the practice of fermentation is a matter of manipulating environmental conditions so as to encourage the growth of certain kinds of organisms and simultaneously discourage the growth of other kinds of organisms. So, I mean, it really, it, it, it really is a safe uh, a process. There's an incredible like track record of safety. I don't mean to suggest that there's zero possibility that anything could ever go wrong, but at least in the realm of, of fermenting vegetables, all the things that can go wrong are things that are visible and yeah. will be um, abundantly you, clear to you. You usually know when something goes go south you yeah. know well i think i think a thing that's interesting you know hearing hearing you say that is you know there is this kind of venn diagram and there's a significant overlap between people who are really interested in this stuff for whether it's for health or for flavor but are also still terrified of the idea that they were going they're going to get sick and have this intense anxiety around bacteria i remember when i was at the workshop that you did um in massachusetts there was somebody a, a woman who had been doing some of her own sauerkraut and, and playing around with some of her own fermentation. And she she knew it was really good for her, but she was really nervous about it. And she was like, I, I, so when I am making sauerkraut, I make sure to sterilize the jars. I normally put them in the dishwasher on the heavy cycle to make sure that they're come up to a certain temperature. And then, you know, I use a certain kind of soap and I'm wondering what your techniques are and, and the things that you worry about. And you said, you pause and you're like, you know, I just, I try to make sure that there's no soap left over in it after I wash it, but that's pretty much it. Right. I mean, why do you need the jar, the jar to be sterile if, like, the hands you're working with aren't right. sterile and, you know, the air around you isn't sterile and whatever kind of, you know, utensil you might use to, um, you know, press the vegetables down in the jar isn't going to be sterile. So, I mean, sterility is – I mean, sterility really is a fantasy. So, I, I mean, ster sterileness is just beside the point and, and not necessarily – you want everything to be clean. You want your hands right. to be clean, the utensils, the vessels to be clean, but you don't have to go to any extraordinary lengths and whatever kind of, you know, incidental environmental bacteria are, are present are, are not going to be significant uh, uh, in the process. Right. At the end of the day, you know, we're not making microchips. We're making food. Right. Well, I mean, and I think that that's kind of, I feel like you could sum it up in like, you know, look, you want to be, you, you could make bacteria the enemy or you could make friends. And it kind of seems like making friends is actually easier than trying to fight all of the bacteria that's anywhere and kind of- You're outnumbered. Yeah, yeah, we're, we really are outnumbered. <laughs> well, and I mean, I would say, you know, the, the war on bacteria is a, histor a historical period that we are passing out of. Right. Um, you, you know, I, I mean, you know, nobody well-versed in biology thinks of bacteria as the enemy anymore. Um, you know, we could never survive without bacteria. Bacteria provide all kinds of essential services for us within our bodies and in the environment around us. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're just, you know, really – the, the fabric of life, you know, evolutionary biologists, you know, are rapidly approaching a consensus that all life has evolved from bacteria. No form of life has ever lived without bacteria. And, um, you know, we, I, I think that, you know, we kind of have to approach the problem differently and recognize that bacteria, I mean, you know, friends or enemies, like they're, they're just a reality. They're right. the matrix of life and they're, they're part of us. And, um, you, you know, we need healthy bacterial 
populations in our bodies in order to remain healthy. And so we just have to shift strategies. And rather than, um, you know, kind of indiscriminate warfare of trying to kill all of them, you know, we have to work on, you know, ways to, you know, cultivate the bacteria that make us healthier. And, um, uh, you know, for the time being, I would say that, you know, the, the most effective means we have are the traditional methods of, of, of fermenting food. And if you're going to get involved in fermenting food, you're going to have to make some kind of a piece with um, bacteria in your kitchen. Yeah. Well, I, I want to ask one, one more question kind of before we move into the kitchen and kind of some of the nerdier aspects of this. But Often you, you know, you are described as and self-identify as an activist. When I read that, it it makes me feel like fermentation is a part of something kind of larger and cultural, you know, both in the, you know, microbiological sense, but in the kind of larger socio-cultural sense. And I'm just wondering, you know, how do you see your work with fermentation as as activism? Where How does that kind of play in? Well, I, I would say in all kinds of different levels. So, I mean, on the one hand, I, I think that, you know, empowering people with, um, you know, techniques for for working with food that can enable them to, you know, eat healthier food and share healthier food with uh, with, with people around them, um, you know, is in and of itself, a, you know, a valuable form of social activism, you know, simply in, you know, making the possibility of better and more nourishing food available um, um, to more people. Um, and I certainly, you know, in, in, in the teaching that I do, uh, uh, you know, I'm always seeking out, um, you know, venues that, um, um, you know, will be as accessible as possible to, you know, the, the, the broadest cross-section of, uh, of, of, of people. Um, so, so, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, the empowerment of, um, of sharing skills, you know, in a largely de-skilled society. Um, but beyond that, I mean, I think it's important to recognize that, um, you know, fermentation is full of powerful metaphors and fermentation is much much more than, um, you know, a transformative, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of process that, you know, turns raw products of agriculture into all these delicious foods and beverages. Um, and, um, you know, if, 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 if you search any kind of like, you know, media database, you'll find, you know, references to a, a period of great cultural ferment, political ferment, intellectual ferment, um, uh, social ferment, spiritual ferment, religious ferment, whatever it is, it has to do with excitement. The word fermentation comes from Latin fervere, which means to boil. And it's because the visible action of fermentation is bubbles of carbon dioxide rising in liquids, um, you know, just as the visible action of boiling in, 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 in water would be um, uh, the bubbles rising. But when we use it in a metaphorical sense, um, it, uh, uh, you know, it, it means the bubbles of people who are excited, people who are, you know, talking about ideas that are exciting to them, whether those are political ideas or spiritual ideas or intellectual ideas. Um, uh, um, so, you know, when people are excited about ideas, when ideas are taking hold because so many people are excited about them and talking about them, it's the talking about them that is the bubble. So I think that, um, you know, fermentation just also is a, is, a, is a powerful metaphor. And, you know, for people who are activists and who, you know, sort of conceptualize of their, their role in the world, um, um, being changing the world and making it a better place, well, 
we are the seed culture. So I so I just think you know fermentation is full of you know amazing. Um, um, uh, you know metaphors that are that are that are useful for for thinking about social change and social change movements. Totally. Well, so I guess we you know want to kind of transition into us talking about you know Brad some of the things that you're working on in the test kitchen and to, for you guys to get to talk yeah. a little bit. I know Brad, you you brought some uh, some kombucha for us to try. Yeah, let's open a bottle real quick, right? Shall we? What are we looking at? That's it's just con- purple uh, Concord flavor, mm-hmm. Concord grape. And so, how did, how did you do that? Did you did you put the mature kombucha over some grapes or mix it with some grape juice? Yeah. So what I I mean I have done both. Um, so what I do is I just start with like the basic tea. You want to you want to walk us through what what kombucha is for those uh, in the audience. To the best of my knowledge, a, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, like you said before, people start with a scoby. Uh, or I mean, you, it, what a scoby is symbiotic community of bacteria and yeast, and that's all in the liquid. That's like the 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 beneficial part of kombucha, if I'm not mistaken. And so it's already in the liquid. So when you put it- But, but when people talk about the SCOBY, they're not talking about the liquid. It's this little like rubbery pancake looking thing that it's like rests a, on top. It looks the, like a laminated biscuit made of wax. <laughs> but if you, you know? get like a, a, a thing of kombucha at the store, it might be the thing that's kind of like a little at the floater. end. It's like a little yeah. loogie in there. Yeah, yeah. And really so- selling people on so you beverages. Could, when you when you put it in the jar and you feed it with a tea and sure it's like a sweet tea combination. What it, the scoby is every time it forms a new layer and what it is is the bacteria. To the best of my understanding, the the bacteria and yeast are really happy, so they make this protective plug, protective wall on the top of the surface because the liquid is just everything's really good for them right now. They don't want any foreign intruders coming in, so they build this big protective, what we call the mother, the scoby. And uh, so there, all all the actions going on in the liquid, okay. and <clears throat> and so there, and the and this scoby is what, what's it eating? Is it eating the sugar? The sugar and parts from the tea. I believe some of the tannins from the tea, and uh, and then when once it gets to the a nice like kind of sweet kind of tart spot, uh, still has a little hint of tea flavor. Then I put it into another vessel and I put it into like fermentation beer making bottles with the little pop tops. So these are like the flip top kind of. Things that you might see like French lemonade in sometimes. It's got like a little grommet. Sure, but you want to make a lot of them are just made like that. You when you know when you go out to dinner and they have these little bottles of water everywhere. A lot of them aren't the glass isn't rated for pressure mm-hmm. for fermentation. So you want to you want to get ones that are made for a fermentation food grade, uh, like a beer making bottle. They sell them online um, because a lot of the other ones are just decorative. And under the pressure, they I've had some blow up, and and I and I think it's really good to emphasize this point for people who want to experiment with car- carbonating sweet, lightly fermented beverages like kombucha. Um, you know, is that you know there's still sugar in there, um, it's actively fermenting, and it can build up a lot of pressure. And it is not uncommon to hear stories of bottles exploding. So, you know, if you do this, you want to really uh, uh, do it with caution and keep a close eye on them. Uh, what I like to do just as a, as a safety practice is with each batch, bottle at least one bottle in a recycled plastic soda bottle so I can feel when you first fill it up, you can squeeze it and, and, and it doesn't resist at all. But as the pressure builds, it resists your squeezing right. more and more. So that's a really easy way to monitor the pressure. But bottles do explode, so you have to really um, approach this with, uh, with caution. Yeah, and I found, like you said, like sometimes I'll use just store bought juices as the sec for the secondary. Where when so after the first fermentation, in with the scoby, I put it in a bottle with a little bit of fruit juice, 
and then you cap it and let it stay at room temperature for depending on how, how warm your room is and uh, that's where the carbonation will happen so that's like so the all the bacteria that are in the mature kombucha are now eating the new sugars and producing right it's CO2. like a little primer a little last meal kind of thing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that gives them so when they eat the sugar they let they, that's where the carbon you know carbon dioxide happens and uh, and then with being capped it just gets reconstituted into the into the liquid I think I believe that's how it works and um, yeah, and then, like you said before, uh, you know, I've used fresh where I go to like the farmers market and I'll get like fresh grapes or whatever kind of juice, I mean, uh, fruit, and I'll juice it and I'll use that in there. And I get because it's not most juices are pasteurized that you go and buy in the store, so they're they're dead. Um, but when you make your own juice, it's got its own little life, its own little funqua to it. And uh, I've had that's where I've had much more success. With, it's much more active. I found when you use. I mean, it makes sense to have when it has its own life force in it already. It's just adding to the party. Well, and and these secondary fermentations for kombucha are really the source of all these amazing flavors that 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 that, that we're seeing. And for people doing home home fermentation of kombucha, I mean, really the experimentation could be endless. I mean, there's nothing that you could not and that's part of the incorporate fun. into it. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, I, I've tried another thing since we're talking about uh, carbonated liquids um, where I took some fresh Concord grapes that were from the farmer's market and just some white grapes that they had. And I just, I, you know, mashed them, uh, you know, in a, in a big, in a big jar. Uh, and then I let it, I let it ferment uh, in, you know, just on a table for a few days. It gets very bubbly. Things start happening. I stir it every day. It starts smell. I keep it closed. I was reading somewhere that if you leave it open, sometimes it can start getting a little vinegary dude from the oxygen, I'd imagine. Uh, so I keep it closed. It gets a little bubbly. It gets a pretty dry, starts getting, tasting like bad wine. And then, uh, and then I'm straining it and bottling it the same way I was doing the kombucha. And I'm, uh, you know, and, uh, and I'm letting that try to get it carbonated. And it seems to be pretty active. I, I recently had an accident where one of them, I was bottling and I didn't have a, I didn't have a smaller bottle. So, uh, I didn't leave the proper headspace, which we didn't mention before, but when you do bottle in the glass, you have to leave, you know, a good, you know, inch or two of headspace on from the liquid to the top. And uh, that's very important for the, the carbonation process. I well, left, and also, and, and, and especially for bottles not exploding quickly. The pressure. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and uh, so I left too much and I believe it was still a little too sweet. Maybe I could have let it go a little further. Uh, but I let it go for like three days at room temp and I was looking at it and it didn't, sometimes I just give it a little shake and you can see the bubbles coming up and it didn't seem carbonated at all. Uh, and before you open one that you let go in the carbonation, you, you should really chill it first. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, what, 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 the story you're telling just makes me think of a larger point that I'd love to make, which please. is that, I mean, kombucha is really just the tip of the iceberg in the realm of lightly fermented beverages. And, um, you know, there's lots of different ways you can make lightly fermented beverages. Um, you can use ginger as a starter and do, you know, ginger beer or root beers or things with, a, with, with just grating ginger into a little sugar water. Use organic ginger ginger because a lot of um, non-organic ginger also has been subjected to irradiation so it won't really have the bacteria and yeast in it. 
that organic uh, 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 ginger will. You can just use fruit as a starter. I like to make what I call fruit kvass, kvass yeah. being a, a Russian um, um, uh, word for lightly fermented beverages. And, uh, you know, f- just fruit in sugar water for a few days yields such a beautiful, um, uh, 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 fresh uh, uh, kind of a flavor that's that's vigorously bubbly and satisfying. Do you do a secondary on that or you just drink it right from the air? Yeah, it's usually little, I just do. Well, I mean, it's own little what I'll do is leave it in an open, ve- you know, leave it with on the fruit and then I'll strain the fruit out and then seal it into into a bottle and let it carbonate for another day. Nice. Yeah. So I had one and I left too much headspace on it. And I don't know if that's why it happened, but I opened it up. And I mean, as soon as I broke the seal, the glass turned into sand. Like it sounded like a gun went off. I had little cuts all over my hands from the, I mean, luckily nothing got in anyone's eyes or anything, but uh, I wanted to ask you, do you think that's just because did that have anything to do with the headspace being too great? Like it built up this crazy little pocket of pressure bomb, or maybe it just had too much sugar. Uh, I mean, I, w- I would say probably the the latter. The, too the, much food. The, just because, the, I mean, too much sugar. I mean, any of these lightly fermented beverages, you know, there's a lot of sugar in them. You probably want to drink them while they still have some of the sugar in them. Um, uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, too much sugar, but but really it's too long in the bottle, in the bottle. without being off-gassed. Okay. Because um, sometimes people use bottles like that and like, you know, every 12 hours they'll just it. sort of loosen the top to burp it, release the pressure, get a sense of how fast the pressure is building in there. Um, you know, r- r- Russian cuisine has a great little trick of putting a single raisin in the bottle. And when the raisin rises to the top, oh. that's your indication that the bottle has carbonated. Oh, I like that. Um, because it's little bubbles of carbon dioxide that are making the raisin rise to the top. Interesting. You know, one of the things that I really love about, about all of these different processes and kind of having fermentation as a part of your kitchen life is that you are, you know, you were just talking about people kind of checking on their ferments and burping them and releasing gas and things like that. It's like, it really does feel like you have a pet. You I know. miss it over the weekend. It's like <laughs> you miss it. You like yeah, go my home projects. to your actual I, child. I think about it. I get a little excited on Monday morning. I get to go <laughs> in and, and check on my babies. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's fun because it feels like it's, you know, while, you know, other cooking processes, you you cook, you know, you so you braise something for a couple of hours or, you know, you're, you're chopping something, you're tossing it, you eat it. And then it's kind of, and then you say goodbye. And then, you know, the, the ferments, I feel like you have this, there's this anticipation, this waiting. I feel like for me, Fermenting foods in my own kitchen really um, made the kitchen feel, you know, for lack of a better word, alive and lively when I wasn't there, that there was kind of this life you know, outside of my manipulation going on, and it's and it's exciting, and there is a lot of anticipation. Actually, you know, I'm staying with I'm staying with my brother and sister in law and nephew, and my my 14 year old nephew has gotten into making yogurt, and last night he made some yogurt. Um, but there was a lot of excitement this morning, yeah. like like oh my god, oh, yeah. let's check the yogurt. Did it work? Did it, oh good, it worked. It's beautiful. It's thick. It's great for relationships. <laughs> I mean, it really it, it does it really does just like bring people together in a way, like you know, like. They say, you know, like having a meal with friends over, you know, is a great thing. But like same with like fermentation, you know, and you, you meet people that are doing it as well. And you, you, know, you share you share tips and you talk about it and you meet somebody else. And it's just it's kind of it, it's it's a neat little culture. So, yeah, what we're looking at is Brad's Concord Grape Kombucha. It's like fizzy. It's kind of like a kind of a ruddy, purpley. It's a nice red color. color. Yeah, it's beautiful. Mine has a little uh, kind of loogie. Scoby. That's a mother. Hanging out in Listen, there. If you were to put that in a nude vessel and feed it, it would 
is, if I swallow it, is it going to turn it's, my inside? It's got a gr- it's got a really nice level of carbonation. It's got a beautiful balance of um, you know the uh, acidity and 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 the sweetness. I mean, there's a lot of subjectivity to this. I mean, people always want to know when is it done, and it's done when it tastes good to you, right? And, and that's just different for everyone. So some people, you know, some people make it and to me it's sickeningly sweet or sometimes people will make it and it tastes like vinegar, but it could be anywhere, you know, Whatever sort of on that to. spectrum and, and and it's highly subjective. I mean, really almost all fermentation, you know, people want to know with sauerkraut, like when is it ready? How long does it take? But there, there's just, there's no, there, there's no objective um, date right. when it's ready. It's, it's, you know, it's ready when the acids like have accumulated to your liking. Sure. I mean, they can be similar, but I find like with all for, uh, fermentation, every project, it, it's, you know, even if you do the same thing, tends to be a little different each time. And, uh, and that's kind of, that's kind of a good thing too. Yeah. I remember you telling a story at the conference that I went to about going on your, your first, going on a tour to promote wild fermentation and, Going to different places and don't you know you you were trucking around some buckets of sauerkraut that had gone for many weeks and was really potent and and you know giving some to people and then finding it a little freaky and then giving it to these two older I think German or Eastern European women who are like well it's good coleslaw <laughs> and then having to make a new fresh batch that wasn't very fermented and it was only a couple days old and handing that out and and some people just loving that kind of fresh very lightly fermented you know. I, I, feel, I feel like people have a lot of different, you know, it's to your taste. And, and that is kind of, there's, there is no right or wrong. Yeah. I mean, you know, the historical context for that is, you know, people, it was survival food through a winter. So people had fermented for a long time over a whole winter. But that doesn't mean you have to wait six months before, or six weeks be, before you eat it. You know, it, it's it's really very good, younger. And, and as you described, I mean, many people will eat a three-day-old kraut and say like, wow, that's delicious. I thought I didn't even like sauerkraut, but that's <laughs> great. One more question before we lose uh, Mr. Katz. Um, so what should, with fermenting garlic, I, I'm doing a little honey and garlic fermentation thing, and it's like a little little medicine that I, that I believe in, and I think it's wonderful. Um, a lot of people are scared of botulism being tied to garlic and, and fermenting. And I, I like to put it in a lot of stuff, and I haven't had any problems. Um, yeah, uh, well, so, okay, there, there, there have been a couple of cases of botulism related to garlic under olive oil. Right. Um, so if you want to preserve garlic under olive oil, I would say what, what would make that absolutely safe would be to marinate the garlic in vinegar before you First. put it in the olive oil because the acidity of the vinegar would um, you know, kill off the, the um, uh, uh, botulism, the botulism. organisms. In honey, I don't think that that would be um, um, a problem at all. And I mean, the, the problem isn't garlic per se. The problem is under olive oil, like okay. something that's really juicy like garlic on, 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 under olive oil. But I mean, garlic and honey, I don't think that that would be a, a, a concern at all, really. Right. And, I mean, there's nothing intrinsic to garlic that makes it, I, I, you know, I mean, botulism is something that comes up a lot. Right. Um, um, you know, it's a, it's a big... Um, you know, it's the most notorious food poisoning uh, um, uh, 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 toxin. It's produced by this bacteria, Clostridium botulinum, which is such a common soil organism right. that probably, you know, 95% of the 
you know, a, 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 a plant material most of us eat uh, has been exposed to cells of Clostridium botulinum, but it can only develop under such a specific, um, um, you know, environmental condition. You know, in the realm of fermented vegetables, there's just no concern of it because you're in a watery environment where there's dissolved oxygen. Um, uh, you know, cl Clostridium botulinum can only function, it's called an obligate anaerobic, can only function in a totally anaerobic environment, which is what we create when we're doing canning. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, why we know the name botulism. Historically, botulism was associated with botulus, which is the Latin word for sausages, fermented sausages, salamis. Um, and, um, you know, but, but, but just mostly we just don't have to think about it or worry about it because, you know, the environments we're working with all have dissolved oxygen in them. So there's just no possibility for, for and that usually bacteria acidic. to develop. And, and, and certainly acidic also, yeah. Right. Well, thank you. Cool. Well, Sander Katz, thank you so much for joining us. Bradley Oni, thanks for Always a pleasure. being here also. Thanks Good. so much. Cool. Thanks so much for um, for inviting me here. This podcast has been brought to you by Carrie Polis, Emma Wurtzman, and Lily Sherman with editing by Mitra Kaboli. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Gradies. We have new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>